Let me at least introduce the two of you. Django, this is another cheeky black bugger like yourself, Steven. Steven, this here's Django. You two ought to hate each other. <laughs> Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where this week we are continuing our exploration of Quentin Tarantino's Django Unchained. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host here in San Diego, California. Uh, And joining us again for this breakdown and discussion uh, of Django Unchained here is writer... I'm going to say director, just because I believe that's going to happen. Producer, actor, comedian, uh, former professional wrestler, pundit, and critic, uh, and dare I say it, friend, uh, the great Jay Washington. How yeah, I was you, fine with all that introduction until you got to the friend part, and I was like, here's where we're stretching it right now. Here's where, the part where we're stretching it. Like, my friend, oh my God, I don't like you. No. <laughs> you know, I got nothing but much love for you, sir. Uh, John and Steve, thank you for having me back again, man. Uh, it's great to be talking a film that I definitely love and a film that's, you know, has a lot of, we talked, like we said in part one, has a lot of, is marred in controversy all around from different parts, from people who love it to people who hate it, to people who have, why are these things done? Why are those things done? Like this wasn't during that time. This wasn't, and it's just, that's Quentin Tarantino in a nutshell. It's funny you say that because as we move into the second part of this movie, I found as I was rereading my notes and thinking about what we were going to do today, my stress level just goes up, you know, because there's shit that Mm -hmm. we're going to have to talk about and it's difficult shit to talk about. And Quentin Tarantino and his style does not make it easier. You know, like a a year ago, John, when we did, we did our season of Spike Lee and we were talking about do the right thing and Malcolm X. And I had an I mean, those are serious movies that, that I absolutely love. But they didn't stress me out, actually, the way that talking about Django stresses me out, because those are serious films dealing with serious issues. And this yeah. is a Quentin Tarantino movie. I right. Put it well, that and way. This has been Spike Lee's was Spike Lee's complaint about them. Now, he said he, he said at the time he's never going to watch it. I don't know if he's softened on that right. stance, but certainly at the time he felt like that Tarantino was in a way obscuring the issue of slavery by putting it through this uh, grindhouse uh filter uh from the 70s and so but i you know that's uh, i think that's up to everyone else to decide how they feel about it. i don't agree with spike i think it actually portrays this very powerfully and i, I can't remember if it was sam jackson or whoever came out and said that this film shows you what slavery was actually like even more than 12 years of uh, as a slave which i was like so surprised by that comment so very divisive film but i think that shows is something that jay washington said numerous times on shows that I've hosted that he's been on is that, um, you know, black people are not a monolith. And I think that's a great thing to see all the different perspectives. And it also helped that you had Samuel L. Jackson be the one to say it, not just because he was a prominent black figure in, in this film, but because of his connections with Spike Lee and his connections with Quentin, he's in between the two. And, Look, we've we've said, we've been saying for the past several years as black people, look, we're tired of black trauma porn. And when people hear that phrase, they don't understand what we mean. And that's like seeing slave movies on repeat, seeing black people going through uh, segregation, discrimination and racist stuff on repeat. You know, not to mention the stuff we see in real life. You know, we see these videos from cops, et cetera, et cetera. So you take it back to this point in time when this movie comes out. 
And like I said, Spike Lee's biggest criticism was, oh, the use of the, the N-word in this movie. And again, the movie is about slavery. I'm going to be honest, and a lot of people may push back against this statement. And I'm just going to say, if you do, at, don't at me, at your mama. Um, if the movie didn't have an overusage of that word in a movie involving slavery, I would think it would be not being genuine. I, I, hate, I hate to say it that way because you know that's when the word flew around like the word the. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I 100% agree that censoring that word entirely out of this era would be just completely unrealistic. I'll tell you, I didn't think about this, Jay, until you were just saying it, but what you described about black mm. trauma porn, that's why I, as a Jewish guy, never sought out Holocaust movies mm. because I was raised on it. I was shown the actual films of the Holocaust as a kid at my temple when I was nine years old. Wow. You know? And so like, you know, I know John, we did um, judgment in Nuremberg years mm. ago and you were shocked that I had never seen it because yeah. as a yeah, Jewish yeah. guy, because I've seen it, I've seen it. I know the stuff I've read the books. Yeah. And so I don't seek it out. And so I totally get that. I also go like, I love spike, you know, you know, I love spike mm -hmm. and I love his films. I think he's a great filmmaker. And I do not agree with condemning a movie without seeing it. When Passion of the Christ came out and everyone was saying it was anti-Semitic, I was like, well, I had to go see the film. I can't yeah. answer that question until I see the film. And I'll tell you, having seen it, I went, I have a lot of opinions about Passion of the Christ, but it is definitely, in my mind, not anti-Semitic at all. That's what I think. And these are the kinds of things that sometimes we get into when we do our shorts here on the cinephiles and some of the things you all can have access to if you're a Patreon, uh, a patron member is those shorts. You can send in suggestions. Steve and I have fun conversations. You can get access to listen to them every week. And we love to get suggestions from our patrons and you can become a patron member at patreon.com slash the cinephiles and see tiers that work for you. I've recently sent out some emails to some of you all who in certain tiers to ask what you would like to see from Steve and I, because we'd love to get your thoughts and your um, input and your feedback about how we can grow the Patreon even more to match what we're already doing with our show so that we can work in tandem together in an interactive way to elevate the show to the next level. So, you know, these are things that we love to talk about and we're not afraid to talk about these topics on the cinephiles shorts uh, section of the Patreon. So just a little bit of a mini plug there as we're talking about this stuff. I couldn't agree more, John. And I think that the, the big thing I never want to do on the cinephiles, and I feel like we've been pretty good about this since with the very, the very beginning mm. is I don't want to shy away from difficult issues. You yeah. know, like if that's what the film is talking about, then that's what we got to be talking about. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. and right now we're talking about training Django into being a bounty hunter because he just made the deal with uh schultz and schultz said that he is going to help him to rescue his beloved Broomhilda. and now we go into a sequence that i just love and it starts with you know we saw we saw the first outfit that django picked out and it was uh, a little outlandish <laughs> and now we see him come out in the full cowboy regalia which again i'm you know I know I'm going to say this many times. This is not correct for the period. What I really like, by the way, is the, as I mentioned before, the customer is Sharon Davis and that what Quentin was talking to her about for this part of Django's costume was Bonanza. He wanted this to look like Bonanza and so much so that they tracked down the dude that make, made Michael Landon's hat oh. on the TV show Bonanza to have him make Django's hat wow. for this scene. That's incredible. 
<laughs> and it's kind of perfectly Tarantino too, you know, <laughs> to to go to Bonanza. And the other the other thing that's amazing about this sequence is the choice of Jim Croce as the music. Yes. Like the pine trees lining the winding road. I've got a name. I've got a name. I've got a name, which is a, yeah. a great song that I love from Croce. But the lyrics themselves, you know, about getting to be seen, about being recognized. So it's, it kind of fits in some weird roundabout way for what Django is doing, because Django's coming into his own identity here during this whole montage. So it's such an interesting out-of-the-box choice, yet it totally works. And they head off to the snow-capped mountains of Wyoming. They travel a lot of distance here. And all the shots are beautiful. It's all gorgeously filmed. And there's a shot of Jamie Foxx like bathing in a frozen lake or something. Mm. And I'm looking at it going, well, how did they do that? Like, because that doesn't look like a fake frozen. You're out in a location. Like I go, I wonder, I was trying to figure out, well, how would you do it? Because having an actor in a frozen lake is, you know, cold. <laughs> There's no other way to put it. This is cold. <laughs> It's cold, and you can't do that for a long sequence. You know, you're going to hurt your actor. And I went, I wonder if they actually built like a hot tub in under the water so that there's a barrier that we can't see that's keeping the water that he's actually in not freezing cold, but it looks like he's part of the same whole lake. I wonder if that's how they but did something, it. And but I here's no the thing. Sometimes in actual nature, there are hot springs in areas like that. Their nature oh, actually, sure. it's weird because I've seen things with animals in certain climates, they bathe in warm things, and it's a whole, like, snow-capped area. It's just geologically, mm. the earth is warmer at a certain point at the bottom where it can heat up the water and keep it melted in that one spot. It's it's a This planet is well, weird. So that is what... I mean, it's the best <laughs> way to say it. This planet is weird, but it's one of the things the planet can do. Yeah. Actually, I hadn't even thought about it, but particularly in Wyoming, that's where Yellowstone is, which has... All sorts of volcanic activity. And I, in fact, have been in a natural hot spring in Wyoming. So maybe that is exactly the answer. (laughs) I feel like we've really gotten to the bottom. (laughs) So I'm very, very happy about this. And the other thing, of course, that happens in this moment is that he turns and there is Hildy looking at him and smiling. Yeah, and I think think this is um, really smart of him to, Tarantino, that is, to, Make sure we see Hildy like the way he sees Hildy, right? We're seeing her through his eyes, but we're also as a as a um, audience seeing her in these beautiful moments. And Carrie Washington is just naturally gorgeous, beautiful woman. The looks that she gives, the kind of really loving looks, um, the smiles, all of that, it helps to keep her alive for us as an audience and understand where Django, why Django is taking this mission on, because we don't actually see Carrie for like. I don't know, an hour and 45 minutes or hour and a half into the movie is the first time we really see her. And then it's it's just this, it, and we go right into a, a damn roller coaster after that, um, as soon as, almost immediately after she appears. So I think it's a smart way for Tarantino to keep her in our minds um, as we go through this journey with Django. Let me ask this question. Do you feel like it's one of those things where it's to remind us of, to remind us, to remind him why he's doing this? Oh, because yeah. remember, he has no purpose. He doesn't he's not about the money more so just for the money. Remember, you got Schultz who's doing this as a job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. this is I'm just trying to get the money to get her. So just so you remember, it isn't just about him being a slave, a former slave killing white men. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you think that that could be the case as well? 
That is 100% what I think. And, yeah. and I'll tell you the epiphany that I just had, which is that obviously revenge and ideas of revenge play a huge part in Tarantino films pretty much from Kill Bill forward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But this is actually not a revenge film. I mean, certainly we're going to punish a bunch of evildoers. But this is a classic hero's journey of the yeah. Siegfried, the prince, going to rescue his lady love. Yeah. You know, his goal is not revenge. He might take vengeance as yeah, we yeah, get yeah. there. But that's not the goal. That's not what this is about. This, this is more Joseph Campbell hero's journey in a lot of ways. The only other one that I think is similar, you could put in that category would be Kill Bill. Um, mm. But this is yeah. really a hero's journey. You know? Right, because she's there to get her child. And if she has to kill people along the way to get her child, she will do so. Well, you got to yeah. remember, for her initially in Kill Bill, it's not until two that we actually see that she learns she has a child. Because yes. in the first one, oh, it's just oh, right. you got to remember in the first one, it's just a revenge thing. Yeah, it's a right, yes, yes. It's yes, just yes. a revenge thing. She doesn't because even though the movie is actually split up, yeah. you know, of course it's not the way it's split, but it's not until after she kills Sophie, she does the things with Sophie, and yeah. Sophie reports back to Bill. To say, does she know that her daughter is still alive? Yeah, right, 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 right. We cut to uh, Django on like a cliff, looking down at a farm at with through his rifle sight at a target, and he is hesitating. He is not firing. And I love. I mean, to say I love what Christoph Waltz does at any moment in the movie is just kind of redundant. But uh, but he goes. Ooh. What happened to Mr. I want to shoot white folks for money? (laughs) (laughs) And you see the reluctancy in Django, because Django at this point is like, his son is with him. Yeah. Yeah. Because, like, you know, he thought it was just easy as, oh, everybody I'm going to kill along the way is just going to be by themselves. Right? Now it's a guy with his son. And then you get the moment where Christoph Waltz pulls out the handbill. It's like, go ahead and read this real quick. And so, and it breaks down who who Smitty Bacall is, who the guy is, and also is teaching Django how to fully read at the point at the same time, but to let him know and say, hey, if Smitty Bacall wanted to have a farm and have kids and do all this and blah, 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 that'd be fine. But he wanted to rob and kill people. And that's who Smitty Bacall is. And I was like, damn, because it lets you know that, look, wanted dead or alive means literally wanted dead or alive. And nine times out of 10, we going dead. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to save your wife by doing what I do? This is what I do. I kill people and sell their corpses for cash. Mm-hmm. I think the, the use of the word corpse is very key because that's a weird way to say that. I sell their corpses for cash. And I think one of the, I mean, obviously, Tarantino does a lot of movies where the main characters are bad people, you know, like there are a lot of bad people that we follow yeah. and even like. And this is, and I think what's interesting about about Schultz is that, he is he is a killer. That is what he is. He yeah. has a specific code where he fits in, but he kills people for money. That's what he does. Yeah. Which, of course, Django uses later when they have that moment uh, about D'Artagnan and the dogs, you know, when they're having the back forth over the saddle. He uses this moment, which I think is kind of a brutal moment, too. And it shows you that, you know, as heroic as these guys have been presented in the first 45, 50 minutes of the movie – Now we're seeing the uglier side of this thing that he's going to kill a man or they are going to kill a man in front of his own son, you know, and in a sense, maybe even start a whole new Western where that kid seeks vengeance against Django and uh, Christoph Waltz uh, in his mind. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a pretty brutal scene uh, and it's done from a distance. And I think that's also smart 
because Tarantino is still able to retain heroic elements of both of these guys by not having us see the up-close death of the father and the reaction from the son. So it's it's a smart move. And there. also, you got Waltz who's like, let the son try to do something. If I got to kill a yeah, son, true. I'll kill a son too. Yeah, Like, it, it's nothing to him. But again, right. when you have that lifestyle, you when you start taking the, – the, the theory is we hear with serial killers and everything from documentaries is once they do one – it's easy to do the next 30 to 40 or however many they do. It's such a fascinating thing. A really, really liking both these characters and, and, and also going, he has to convince us that these are bad guys. You know what I mean? Right. Like, because otherwise we can't really move forward. And it does convince Django and he picks up that rifle and he kills that man. And we hear that kid go, ah! his father goes down and we don't, spend a lot of time feeling the emotion of that. We're going to move away. And, and by the way, I, again, I looked it up because I'm always curious. This is the $7,000 for killing this guy. That would be $254,000 today. Ooh. Damn. Nope. God, I will not say that line out, out loud. I will not say that out loud. <laughs> I will not say that the comedic line that came on the top of my head was like, how much was that again, Steve? 200 what? <laughs> Two hundred four thousand. Well, shorty just without a father. Listen, <laughs> your daddy made those life choices. All right, now I got. Look, Lord, I'm sorry. I'll be in church for uh, Easter. I'm sorry. I'll be in church. I know Dog the Bounty Hunter ain't making that much. I know that. And uh, he hands him the handbill. Wow, it's good luck. You always keep the handbill of your first bounty. And it's like, yeah, yeah, it is good luck because that handbill is going to save his life and save the life of of uh, Hildy later on in this movie. A yeah. bit of foreshadowing that we did not really expect. Yeah. Yep. And then we have Django facing off against a snowman, practicing that quick draw, looking, I would say, scientifically, he looks cool as fuck, is yeah. how he looks. That's what I'll say. And as he's, you know, doing the quick draws and shooting everything off of this snowman, Schultz comes up and says, that's accurate. And then he shoots one in the crotch. Look, we, which again foreshadowing for later yeah. yep yep <laughs> foreshadowing for later but it, it lets you know okay because remember from the beginning schultz always is like he's special yep there's something about and to watch how his aim just got better and better quicker on the draw he just knew he had something he was like okay cool i'm good i got somebody i know that's got my back and i got his yep by the way, the guy who's the quick draw uh, expert who trained Jamie Foxx is a guy named Thel Reed. He mm. goes back to John Wayne days. Wow. Like, like that's how long he's been around. Wow. And he said, and, it, you know, this is this thing that we've heard on so many movies where someone is an actress playing an athlete, an actor has to ride horses, an actor has to do some skill. They did say that Jamie was really good, that he was a natural with guns, which it mm. kind of looks that way to me, you know. I mean, Jamie does have a horse too. He has his because that's his horse. He actually rides yep. in the movie. That's his actual horse. So you yep. know, look. Let me just say it for the record, y'all. Look, I know we are not a monolith of black people, but a lot of us like to go to the range because you never know. So yeah, I can understand. I can understand. I'm just all I'm gonna say. I can understand. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we take out some more bad guys, and we're coming up to a cabin, hauling some bad guys up. And I like this guy that they meet. It's a small scene. But what I like about this scene is that he obviously knows Schultz, but he also obviously knows Django and totally accepts Django in this role as the yeah. bounty hunter. Because he's a lawman now. He's Remember, he's a servant of the court. Yeah. 
not only is he just a free man, but there's nothing, you know, remember, we remember, even though it's slavery times, and yes, there were some people who, there were people not just in the traditional North who didn't look at, who didn't see slavery the same. They're in Wyoming. Now, granted, Wyoming now is a whole different thing. <laughs> but there are some people who we don't get involved. Think about it. You have a Wyoming, you have a Montana, Utah, all those states that become those Western frontier places to an extent that like, we don't want to get involved in all that that's going on down between those, between the North and the South. And so especially if this dude's a lawman, he may be a lawman. He's like, yo, who do you got there? Wilson loud gang. All right, we'll just leave him out here. They ain't going nowhere. Yeah. Yep. You know, and then after this, we get a very spaghetti Western <laughs> text scroll that says, after a very cool and very profitable winter, Django and Dr. Schultz come down for the mountains and are headed for, and then we have this top-down shot and the biggest text possible goes across the screen saying, Mississippi. Mississippi. Yep. And these sequences of seeing slaves marched through the mud in chains is just, you know. Not just in all- chains, but in those. Yeah, contraptions on their necks and and what have you. you know. I always wonder what it's like to be on set for things like that. And like, are you making sure that you know everyone's talking with each other and everyone's cool with each other and everyone understands? Like, I'm I'm doing things in the scene because I'm being told, and you know, it, uh, I I just hope there's a lot of communication with them. I I think it goes, it, you know, if you can use recent films mm-hmm. with emancipation. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. you know, Will Smith talking about what it felt like because them using the actual collars and then some of the actual collars and remaking the collars. Cool. And, you know, all the feel. Look, I want to make sure I put all the feelings of Will Smith and everything else aside. Mm-hmm. But that moment where you have to get into the mindset of these characters, yeah. you've got over 100 extras who are literally brought on set to be nothing but slaves. Yeah. 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 Yep. To be nothing but slaves, I, as an actor, have said, look, I'm not doing background anymore, ever, because I know what the light treatment is like. And, you know, there is a certain level. There are some who are principal actors who are slaves still. But to be treated as background already, and then when you're on set, this is what you're treated as. And you have to try to take yourself out of the mindset of, I'm a normal person. I'm a slave now. This 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 random white man who I don't know, right, is calling me all these things while I'm walking. And again, we don't we just see the certain what we see at the end result. We don't know how long these takes are. We don't know yep. how many takes. We don't know from how many different angles they hit the cutting room floor and things like that. And so, not just the actors on set, but the crew. Yep. Cause you gotta be like, all right, when I go home, I have to leave my job at my job, but my job is doing something that is like, oh God, I can't believe I have to relive this while working. If that makes sense. Well, and I mean, you just think about it's hot, it's uncomfortable, all of those things that extras in a scene have to deal with anyway. And then you layer Mm. on top this hugely emotional thing on it. There was a project recently, and I feel like it was uh, Underground Railroad, Mm. where I know that they had uh, counselors and advisors and people to deal with the grief of presenting these things and that they had safe spaces for actors to retreat to and for extras to retreat to, to deal with the emotions that this kind of situation brings up. I don't know anything, but my guess is a Quentin Tarantino set was not quite like that. <laughs> you know? Uh-oh. 
Uh, by the way, as terrible and awful as this looks, contrast with that how damn cool Django looks with his sunglasses. And by the way, these sunglasses are Charles Bronson's sunglasses from oh, the movie wow. The White Buffalo. Huh, I love that movie. I've never Lee seen Marvin. it. I've never seen it. What? Oh, my God. This was a staple of my childhood. It was one of those ones that I watched on, like, Metro Media 5. It's him and Lee Marvin hunting this massively white buffalo. It's essentially a Moby Dick parable, uh, mm. but it's out in the wheel. It's out in the snowy wilderness, you know. So it's great. It, it, it sounds like you watch that the way that I watched a movie that I don't think you like as much, which is Hard Times, which is oh. Bronson and James Colburn, right? The fist fighting film. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, also, but I, and of course, both of these movies, I am absolutely certain that Quentin Tarantino knows backwards and forwards. <laughs> yeah, probably. And this is where we have the ledger book open, and he has the records, and we have found where Hildy was sold, and that is to Candyland. Candyland? Oh, so you've heard of it. Ain't no slave ain't heard of Candyland. Yeah. So we already know, I mean, just from that dialogue, we understand what kind of place this might be. And then we get into this conversation. Not in the field. Oh, no, she ain't no field, man. She, she pretty, and she talked good too. But when they tore her back up, and then they burnt that runaway all that she, they goddamned her. Mm-hmm. They make a comfort girl. And we have this hard cut, and Tarantino does this several times. It's like this fast cut to her getting hit in the face with water. She's in the stocks, and she's branded, and it is just terrible. Jay, as you say, when he says comfort girl, it takes Schultz a moment to understand what that term means. Mm -hmm. One thing that isn't made clear in the film, uh, or not perfectly clear, is if that's already happened. Because mm. it's six months since, you know, Django was taken, it's, well, you know, it's a while ago. I mean, it is, made, it is made clear. Yeah, because Steven says it, like, that essentially she was oh. sleeping with all the Mandingo fighters. Yep. He said yeah. it already, yep. Steve did it to to the Steve. Uh, like I know it. Steven did it to spark yeah, the. It's not me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Steven did it to see what the reaction would be from Django. Yeah. So yeah, we do know. And so the first thing is Django. They're trying to figure out the plan, and he goes, "Okay, so we just going to go buy her." And he says, and then basically what uh, Schultz says is, if we try to go buy her, then they're not going to sell her is that we have to come up with a plan that's going to make them want to sell her and not see that this is important. The more important we make it look that we're going to buy her, the less likely it's going to work. When I say fuck that farm, and I'm still that horse. Fair enough, but now you're a horse thief and they hang horse thieves. Not to mention the horse goes back to its original owner because the horse is still his property. And by the way, what I, one of the things I love is Django, you know, Christoph Waltz is a very theatrical way of telling his story, and it doesn't it doesn't go quickly. And Django, you can see his impatience with just like, just get to the point. Get to the point, <laughs> you know? The man walks up to the farmer's farm. He knocks on the farmer's door and asks not to buy the horse, but the farm and makes an offer so ridiculous. The farmer is forced to say yes. We're going to offer to buy candy lane? No, it's far too big, but apparently this farmer ain't all about the farm. How much do you know about Mandingo fighting? And so what this is, is this idea that there is this network of slaves forced to fight to the death. Um, and that this is the thing that Calvin Candy, which is Leonardo DiCaprio 
character is most involved in. Yeah. So I have tried to do research and because I read a thing and that first thing that I read said, this is not a thing that Mandingo, first of all, the term Mandingo comes from a 1957 book and a 1975 film. So the term Mandingo was not a thing. And the first thing I read was historical documents saying this is not a real thing. All sorts of professors, all sorts of people saying that, that economically it wouldn't make sense to do this thing. But then as I dug deeper, I read other things <laughs> that it probably wasn't a thing the way it's presented exactly in this movie. But yeah. were there slave owners that made slaves fight? Yes, there were. Absolutely. And there's a connection to barefisted boxing. And then there's also just the unbelievably painful and horrible scene in Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man of the Battle Royale at the beginning, which is post-slavery era, but mm. but is so fucking brutal. So, you know, I think the history here is complicated, is I guess how I'll put it. Also, I think, and I agree with you, Steve, but I think people forget also slave owners pitted slaves against one another mm -hmm. for fun. Yep. Their own, not just other slaves from other owners. They right. pitted their own for fun because they got bored. I think we're, we're, you know, I think, and I'm not saying us, us three listening, us three talking right now, but I think we forget that there wasn't the typical recreational entertainment back then. Right. Yeah. You know, there wasn't, oh, I can plug, I can watch a TV and watch a good old sporting event. You know, what was sport? I had my animals, but what else were my animals? My slaves. Yeah. yeah, you had a few slaves that the master loved or cherished. And then some people will say, oh, well, why would he fight his big bucks? Those were the strongest ones. But if I have one that wins, I make more money off him. Because, again, at the end of the day, as inhumane and as as freaking absurd slavery was, it's about money. Yeah, It's all about money. Right. So I don't know if history books want to show it, but we've been told about it. Hmm. We've been, we as black kids were told about it. And so, you know, of course, a lot of professors will, well, historically, they don't show records of this. And yeah, you would, it, every bit of art comes from something, some level of inspiration. So that's pretty much as far as I'll go with that. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't seem out of the wrong possibility. That's the uh, truth when you're watching, when we're about to go into that scene especially with the devilish way that they're portraying demonic really way that they portray candy in the film, the fact that he would have an up close type of Mandingo fighting where he is literally in the front row cheering on his person is not out of the realm of possibility. I, you know, I, I don't think it is at all. I think, yeah. I, I think there is the, we're going to fight to the death economically. That seems like that would be an odd move. Right. But what I but I also think, and I'll I'm going to bring up the, just the weirdest metaphor for this that just popped in my brain, which is again, as a Jewish guy at Passover, you read this thing called the Haggadah, and you tell the story of how Moses led the slaves out of Egypt. And there's a line in it that has always struck me in my particular family's 70-year-old Haggadahs that we read. And it says, basically, as the rabbis are talking about how we should tell the story, there's a line that says, Whoever exaggerates or makes this story bigger, that person deserves praise. Hmm. And that always struck me weird as it like, a, we have to have the exact truth. What is the history kind of guy? Yeah. And I think about like, well, what they're trying to do is inspire to make you understand, to make you feel emotionally how bad being slaves in Egypt was. Yeah. And I think there is exaggeration in this film in some ways, 
And that is a good thing. You know what I mean? Like, because to show it in a more subtle way wouldn't have the impact that this is having. And you, Mm -hmm. and therefore the tragedy, the horribleness, the awfulness of slavery by showing it in a, in maybe a way that might be slightly more realistic, isn't giving you the literal hammer blow of what the fuck you're watching, which is so fucking brutal, you know? Because my character is that of a big money buyer from Dusseldorf here in Greenville to buy my way into the Mandingo fight game. And your character is a Mandingo expert that hired to help me do it. I call that one-eyed child. And the reaction Django has to playing this kind of person, he says, You want me to play a black slave? Ain't nothing lower than a black slave. A black slaver is lowered in the head house, nigga. Which, of course, who is the head house slave that we're going to meet? Steve. Steven. Yeah. Which Steven. we find out, we'll find out a lot more about Steven, because I don't, I don't know if you guys, and I know it's going forward real quick, but Steven just isn't the head house slave. Steven actually runs the house. He runs yeah. Candyland. Yeah. If Steve, you think about it, Steven runs more than Calvin does. Dude, right. we're going to have to, Steven is going to take us some time. Yeah. <laughs> there's yeah. a lot. There is a lot there. And you see what it means for Django to think about taking on this role. And buddy, that's pretty fucking low. Mm -hmm. And Schultz says, then play him that way. And with this weird relish, he says, give me your black slaver. I mean, it's, it's a moment. It's weird. But he also remember you playing a role. You playing a role. You're You're playing a role. I need you to be into this character, and no matter what, you cannot break character. And this is the this is the hardest character. Now you have to play. Yep. Yeah. And this to me is the beginning of the Frankenstein Frankenstein monster kind of thing because Django is a quick learner and a quick studier. And as we saw with him picking up the shooting and all of that, what we're going to see as soon as Candy is introduced is we're going to see Django with all with most of the filters off. And he thinks that he has essentially got the go-ahead from Schultz, even though Schultz tries to pull him back a couple times. He's going to run it his way. So in a way, he's like Schultz creating this and asking him to do it and doing this whole flourishing, give me your best black slave. This is what Django gives him because he has the experience of having seen it and heard about yeah. it or talked about it. And so he is going to do it his way. Schultz has this decency to him that when he thinks – uh, he's going too far. He pulls him back and he's like, you don't get it. You don't fucking get it. This is what it is really like, you know? And so I like that we have that aspect to them as a, as a bit of a conflict thing throughout the back half of the movie. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the cinephiles new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yeah, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. 
Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. I'm going to say something that my gut is both of you might disagree with, but okay. the the portray I think everything Jamie Foxx does and everything Django does is super cool, really entertaining. As a con, as a manipulation to get the things that they want, I don't know these are the right choices that he's going to make because he brings so much negative attention on his character that I go, I don't know that this is helping, you know? Yeah. Like, that I, I'm kind of with Schultz of like, hey, pull it back a little bit, you know. <laughs> well, you would be because you're a decent white person. But and, well, and that's, that's the same thing Schultz is for to all exactly. for all intents and purposes. Exactly. He doesn't want he doesn't want Django to be the black slaver. You know, yeah. he did and also he what do you know about it? You know, again, maybe this is all Schultz has heard. Right. Schultz's thing isn't liberating slaves. Schultz's thing isn't dealing with slavery. Making it's money. Wanting, it's making money and hunting down wanted criminals. Yeah. Yeah. And I think yep. this speaks to they think this speaks to why sometimes and this uh, I hope I hope I say this correctly because I you know I do walk into minefield sometimes is I think this speaks to why sometimes white people really have a hard time grasping how bad this really was, how legitimately bad this really was. And the idea of a black slaver is almost worse, you know, because of what he said, because the fact that he would turn on his own people, the fact that he would enjoy the favor he would he would prefer the favor of the white man over his own people and would almost relish uh treating his own people in that way you know and it's it's horrible and steven is an extension of that once we get to sure. steven to be honest so um but you're supposed to feel like and it's smart because you're supposed to feel like Django's going to fuck up at any moment and go too far and so it adds a nice tension and um sparks through the back half of the movie that he starts to kind of, you know, uh, take these things into his own hands and make certain comments and, and, and uh, go toe to toe with candy face to face. Um, We'll, we'll get into like where sort of the points that I, I sort of as, and it's really, it's not as a political thing. It's as a con, like we're trying to manipulate mm -hmm. someone into doing the thing we want them to do. That's where I, there are places where I go, I don't understand why you're doing that, but, Right now, we're heading into this house. They're greeted by a French maid-ish, or fake French maid. Yeah. Which, oh. which and, and, and all all of the trappings that Calvin Candy has created around his world to present an image that is phony and he doesn't understand is just great design, great costumes, great the, the way it's all set up. Yeah. Um, as we go inside, the first person we meet is Candy's lawyer, which is Leo Mc mogi which yeah. is dennis christopher who who is uh an actor in one of the films we've covered chariots of fire he is the one of the american sprinters with brad davis he is the blonde guy that speaks to the prime minister at the end of the near the end of the movie before the big race which until you told me that i would never have remembered that that's the story. i know a lot yeah. of people dennis had a decent career in the 80s and people just forget so it was nice of tarantino to pluck him out like he plucked tom wopat out and a couple other people in this film uh, to be these parts. So I, I love that he did this. And as he's describing who he is, he says, you know, how long he's known Candy, that he went to boarding school with his father. His father, father put him through school. 
One could almost say I was raised to be Calvin's lawyer. One could almost say he's a nigga. Mm-hmm. This is the move where I don't understand why he's attacking the the white folk. It's like, that's just ways to bring negative attention on Django. I don't understand how that helps his cause. He's a free man mm-hmm. with free reign. So, you know, even though white people will still seem, oh, this is just his valet. He's a free guy. He was free by this white dude, but now he can say what he wants. And everybody's going to be like, wait, can you say those things? Because <laughs> if Django goes to Mississippi by himself and says that Django's gone immediately. Exactly. Yeah. Immediately. But he has the protection to say it a bit with Schultz there. And even Schultz is like, uh, bruh, I don't know how much I'm gonna keep protecting you. We don't come the fuck down. <laughs> but that's my point. It's like, why say that? That's just puts him more at risk. That's what I don't understand. No, I anger. There's a lot of anger in this. Well, that I do see. Because remember, his anger is, and I'm sorry, Steve, but his anger is I'm about to, I'm playing this role. Yeah. This is the one-eyed Charlie I've heard so much about. Yeah, I'm playing. I'm. I gotta play the one role out of anything else. The one thing I don't want to do, and don't want to be perceived as. Right. Well, I also think I. I still don't. I think it's totally within the character that he's constructing because a one-eyed Charlie or slaver like this sees himself as equal. If a white man had made the N-word joke. That guy would have laughed. Yep. So he sees himself as at a level. So he has to play that. I am at the same level of white men. And I think to play him as a submissive or quiet, you know, black person in this situation wouldn't have gotten the job done. He's supposed to speak just as white people speak, handle his shit just as white people speak. And to be like, oh, well, let's pull the con and be like really chill and nobody to grow attention to themselves. That's not going to get the job done. You've got to get a little, and you got to keep them on their heels. So he pushes the boundaries a little bit to get the reactions. And he may be gauging what uh, Mogi's reaction would be to it for something later on. Like, huh, what can I do later on to this guy mm-hmm. if I need to? You know, there, there's, there's a lot of strategy, and I think, of what Django is doing here uh, that I think is brilliant, to be honest with you. I like all the times that he pushes back and unsettles things and comes close to the line because he is testing to see where the spots are that he needs. He may need in a future altercation with any of these people. So I want to, I want to change what I'm saying slightly. Okay. Which is that, which is that I don't, I, I still stand by my original statement just sure. as a, a lover of con artists and how, what is the best way to run a con mm-hmm. where I, where I want to change my statement. I think this totally works in the movie because mm-hmm. I think part of what it does is it stresses you out. As, and yes. as an ex- and you go well is this the con is this Django totally in control doing exactly the right thing and what's necessary for the situation or right. is this his anger or is it both and when is it anger and when it is not and how is it going to work and the tension in the film is going way up so I don't have an yeah. objection to it happening in the movie I just go like was this the best strategy well ish I mean Schultz is dead Schultz is I'm, dead from his own Schultz is dead from his own stupidity Schultz is not dead from anything Django did yeah no, Schultz true. dies on his own Schultz dies he he could have signed the bill of sale he could have left it's because he saw that uh, D'Artagnan being pulled apart by the dogs yep he couldn't let it go no it wasn't even that John you're missing the one important it was one it's not even that he saw he signed it he just could have shook his hand well, yeah, fair enough. He could have. That's right. all he, he wanted. Was shake my hand. 
Yeah, yeah. He could have shook his hand. Well, we're gonna his, I would his, table that for oh, now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but I am with you a hundred percent on that moment. Um, and then we have this great thing where we're talking about how Candy is a Francophile. <laughs> what civilized people are, and, and he prefers Monsieur Candy to Mr. Candy. He doesn't speak French. Don't speak French to him. It'll embarrass him. There's a story. That's oh, such yeah. a great. There's just a great flashback you could have given where he is like upset at how much of an idiot he looked like because he was a Francophile but didn't speak it. And someone probably embarrassed him for it. Yeah. Candy, Candy made them pay. And everyone else around him was like, yeah, we're never doing that again. Don't speak French around this guy. <laughs> well, it, it, to me, it also connects to, you know, when Schultz says, I'd like to parley. And they say, speak English, God damn it. <laughs> is, is that Candy's not that far from this guy, from that yeah. guy, yeah. you know? Um, and then we enter into the space. And we hear this grunting. And we see these two slaves wrestling on the ground. And for an audience of two, Candy and the other guy. Yeah. And the way, I would say that the way that it is in the background is makes it more painful and upsetting oh, than yeah. if we were totally focused on it. You know what I mean? And yeah. hearing the sounds and hearing the sounds and the sweat sliding on the wood. It's just, there's just a lot of. Because Mogi, Django, and all of them just walk in cheery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. stay cheery. Mo yeah. Get free man Django a drink, and I'll have sweet tea and bourbon. You know, it, there's nothing to it. Yeah, this time around, I'll tell you, something that struck me, because I, I recently watched the Bill Russell documentary on Netflix, which I think everyone should really watch. It's a fantastic two-part documentary. And there's a, there's a moment there where he's talking about, you know, being playing for Boston and all the shit and how these neighborhoods didn't want him. They wanted to come yeah. praise him when he played the game, but none of them wanted him to move into their neighborhoods, their higher end neighborhoods, none of the white people. And so when I'm watching this scene this time around, it kind of struck me two black men rolling around on the ground for sport of two white men who are sitting front row. And yep. it just kind of struck me how that could connect yeah. with the NFL, the NBA, God, everything except the NHL, maybe. And you can see like this is this is also a bit of a, a take on sport because we always because a lot of people, a lot of people in the society, a lot of white fans, a lot of fans, period, want to tell black athletes to just shut up and play. Uh, and that this idea of like for sport, entertain me. I don't want to hear from you. Entertain me. And that's in essence what Candy and uh, who we find out later is the original Django, Franco Nero are doing in this scene being entertained by this sport and he and candy is yelling at him like fans would yell at their players yep. at games so yep. there's a lot here that i think is fascinating well you can go to go to boxing even uh, as well the bloodthirsty nature of that so just a very interesting little moment here that although it's disgusting for us to look at and uncomfortable to experience there are real world uh nowadays modern day illusions you can make to this situation jay i feel like you got a lot to say that's yeah, just please, how I, feel. I i i because i'm just like you're you're listening at the you see so many players nowadays yeah yeah look i'll i'll go boston even fully hate yeah. to say it boston is a prime example of it yeah from from the celtics to the patriots to everything where the players they love you we'll even go down to carolina and the panthers the players they love you when you're playing when you're yeah. winning when you're winning the moment they lose social media has shown us people's true colors yeah 
We're not even talking about moving into neighborhoods because they have to section off neighborhoods now for just athletes and whatnot. And sometimes those people that are mixed in with athletes are mixed in with high prominent dentists and lawyers and stuff like that. And so to to know that it's the same thing with Bill Russell, it's it's these you're just used for entertainment. It's the shut up and dribbles. It's the you you don't your your opinion doesn't matter because you're black. But if you're the color of me, and you have an opinion, uh, well, you're just saying what you feel at the moment. But that's why I'm just like ah, <laughs> and it angers a certain section of people in this country because they look at these people as millionaires. What do they have to complain about? You know, it does what social and it's it's the old thing. It's the old thing. You know. So it's a shame. First of all, for every millionaire, for every Bill Russell, for every star, there's about a thousand other people who have been fighting for people's pleasure at every single level of sport. You know, yeah. so yeah. or way less person. money than those guys. Or nothing. Yeah. Yeah. It just just for like a half a season and a bat and a and a broken leg, and that's the end of their career. I yeah, mean, true. Very true. Yeah. Um the I the th- thought that occurred to me as you two were speaking was that part of what makes movies about the past worth it is when they teach us things about the present oh totally you know mm-hmm. is when they're saying things about today and the thing that i see with candy and we the guy hasn't even opened his mouth yet but it's that you know it's the sense of privilege it's the sense of i deserve what i have and the fact that we're sitting in these opulent surroundings in yeah. the, where everyone is dressed in these amazing things and watching this brutality and having no connection to the brutality and the thing is Candy doesn't have a job. Calvin Candy hasn't. He didn't earn his money. He just came from a family. Yeah. And now he mm-hmm. just thinks that I am superior. And I and man, the Monday morning quarterbacking, it's not even Monday morning, the in the middle of the fight saying, do what I told you to do. Right. Candy couldn't fight uh, anybody ever yeah. is just like, what the fuck? You know, yeah. that's what fans. Um, and then Moki even getting in on and giving him freaking advice like an assistant coach. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, and then, and of course, the other thing that's interesting is that this is Leonardo DiCaprio, by the way, is that he doesn't even turn around when Schultz comes in and he starts questioning them. Why do you want to get in the Mandingo business? And I think Schultz, for the first time in the movie, is thrown coming mm-hmm. face to face with the brutality that's going on in this scene. Yes. Yeah. Because we've seen him as guys pointing guns at him, killing people as calm as calm can be. That's not the case now. You don't intend to allow your second to make the proper introductions? Quit stalling now. Answer the question. You got Calvin just like, look, don't waste my time. I'm watching this fight. That's how Calvin is. Yeah. Remember, it's like, it, it's Calvin Candy. It's Candyland. It's massive. I have money. I have, I have privileges, you said, Steve. And it's like, look, if you ain't got something really interesting to say to me right now that's going to really pique my interest, I don't care about nothing you got to say. So stop stalling and answer my question. And then, like you said, Schultz is like, uh, shit, okay, cool, I'm bored. And that was yeah. the best line he could have said, I'm bored, because it shows you how little slave owners thought of their slaves. We do this because I'm bored. Not just because it's fun. I'm bored. I need something to do. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing that we see as we're moving into this space, and as, as you mentioned, the lawyer brings Django over to the bar, is who is populating this space? So one of them, of course, is James Remar in his second role, this yes, time that's playing right. Butch Pooch. Uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, 
Is this a movie about reincarnation that nobody tells us about? <laughs> the side plot. And, and, and I love that Django says, You don't wear a hat in the house, white man, even I know that. Second time he pulled the trigger on something. I was like, Oh, yep. <laughs> and then the other thing that we see is the other African Americans, the other slaves populating this room. And and there's this woman in the beautiful, beautiful dress, and there's the guy behind the bar, and you see the looks between them, mm. and you and you see the roles that they know that they have to play, and they can't break these roles, despite the brutality that they're aware of that's going on right in front of them. And the woman, by the way, sorry to cut you off, Garcelle Bouveau, who plays Fancy, his girlfriend in the Jamie Foxx show. Oh, yeah, oh. that's right. That's her. And then we get to the fight is reaching its climax. And this is what you guys said before of them yelling at them and giving them instructions. And it's absolutely fucking brutal. Yeah. And we see this moment where the fight escalates and Candy's man breaks the other guy's arm. And then they yell, blind him. And this is where uh, it's it's so difficult to watch. And Candy's excitement, and he even gets up, I think, and kicks one of the guys to get him going, you know, at a certain point. When he throws him the hammer. Yeah, and he throws him the hammer. Yeah, he blinds him, and then he tells him to finish it off and gives him the yeah. hammer. Yeah. And all of the looks between all of the people that work there as they finish him off. Yeah. And then, as you that said, one woman drops her like candy or whatever she was. All her jelly beans. Yep. Yeah, jelly beans. Yep. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I have nothing. I can't say anything. I, I, it's just <laughs> because <laughs> here, the problem is you have these house slaves, the bartender, Gar uh, Garcelle Bouveau's character, and the other girl that was the escort up. All three of these black slaves still house slaves, but still are slaves and still have to watch the brutality of two other slaves. Who do this now? Remember again, like you said, Jamie Foxx, Django walks in. You know who he is because he walked in with a white man. So he's a one-eyed Charlie. Y'all already know what he is. So the looks are already just a disgust towards him. Yeah, from the other slaves, you know. And so now he has to watch. Django couldn't even watch. Did you notice Django never watched the fight? Yeah, yeah. He never turns from he the back bar to it as he's drinking at the bar. Right. He drinks at the bar. He never looks at it. That's the one thing he could not do. Yeah. No matter how much of a character he played, there's a one that's the one little detail Tarantino managed to keep in that a lot of people I don't think catch on. As much as he played like this, I'm not like these white people, I'm worse than them, et cetera, et cetera. He never once looked at that fight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and now, uh, John, as you mentioned, Franco Nero, who played Django in the original Django, comes over and sits down at the bar. We have a nice little moment where he says his name and says, "Can you spell it?" And he says, "He does." And says, "D is silent." And he says, "I know." Yeah, of course you know. Mitch, just seeing if you did. Meta moment, man. And then it's time to give the fighter his reward. Smoggy, want you to take care of my new boy here. You find him a room with a soft bed, then you bring him up a pony to lick his pole. Um. I don't know about you all, and again, I've never been a slave, don't want to be a slave. I don't think uh, being a slave is ever going to be in my cars. If the way this country keeps going, it may change. Oh, but, my God. Stop. But, but um, I think the last thing after a brutal fight like that, the beer is okay. The bed is fine. Yeah. Don't touch me, woman. I need to recuperate. <laughs> well, uh, uh, A, 100%, and B, it's also the 
you just forced me to kill another man I had nothing against, against uh, my will. Right, right. And now you expect me to go be, re- to perform my gratitude at your reward. Yeah. That's, that's a lot in there. Mm-mm-mm. And then Calvin turns his attention to Django and says, I would tell about you. I heard you've been telling everybody that Mandingos ain't no damn good. Ain't nothing nobody is selling is worth buying. I'm curious. What makes you such a Mandingo expert? And Django, again, not back, not, you know, being as tough as he can be, he says, I'm curious what makes you so curious. <laughs> and wait, the way Leonardo DiCaprio turns around as well as Butch, like, yeah. the fuck? Like, because yeah. normally... If we're using the three strikes you're out rule, that's yeah. Django's third strike. Yep. Cause it may count this is the first time Calvin turns around like the fuck? And you had Butch like just looking at him too. And they're like, oh no, because he's like, yo, what did you butch him? He says, What did you say, boy? And then even Calvin, for some reason, has a level of respect for him at that moment. Oh, you can speak up. Okay. Right, right. Well, I think I <laughs> First of all, I think Leonardo's uh, performance in this movie is great. And I was reaching, I recently saw a bit from uh, Roy Wood Jr. that was basically saying like, I think it was about Leo as an example, but he's like, all the white people that play horrible racists are heroes and deserve our respect. And I was like, that is a funny bit, you know? (laughs) Did you get the story behind that? No. So Jamie says, because Leo... So for Leo, for people who don't know, everybody thinks that everybody who plays a slave owner or a slave like that or a racist is like that. We don't know that for sure with everybody, but Leonardo DiCaprio supposedly is never like that. So him being this character and having to be as graphic, not just in his actions, but in his words, he didn't feel comfortable. So he would go to Jamie Foxx and them and be like, yo, are you okay if I say this? Like, yeah, I'm sorry. So Jamie said, hey, bro, we're not friends. Say it. This is work. Do what you got to do. And from then on, Calvin Candy was born. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I look, we're doing this movie and I have all the dialogue written down and I have to read it. And I don't like and I'm not saying the N word, but yeah, like yeah. I just, you know, I'm staring at you, Jay, and I don't feel good being the person <laughs> that these words have to come out of. That's what I mean when I said I was stressed about yeah, doing yeah. this movie. This is part of it is like. Yeah. I don't like how it feels to be saying these things, even just reading them for our podcast, you know? Yeah, makes sense. I mean, I get it. But yeah, you, you have some. But again, you know, that's why we say certain actors like, whoo, they are commended. But I feel like after you play a role like that, you should donate to the NAACP or at least a local black person that you don't know. Like, <laughs> somebody something. Woo. That's fair. <laughs> and, and I like too, by the way, Schultz isn't all that happy with the way Django is ha- handling this and goes, Monsieur Condi, um, I'd appreciate if you could direct your line of inquiry toward me. And he gets him a beer. And I like that Candy orders himself a, again, totally anachronistic P- Polynesian pearl driver that don't <laughs> spare the rum. And now we start to talk about fighting. I sought you out to purchase a fighting nigger at above top dollar market price. I was under the impression when you granted me an audience, it would be to discuss business. Business. By the way, the way that Candy has these other slaves, particularly, I think it's Sheba, the woman in the beautiful dress, mm-hmm. here is such a, a difficult use of power, I would say, 
and control. And that she knows her life is better on some levels Mm -hmm. by being in this position. And on other levels, she is therefore a part of the power structure that is keeping other people down and the power structure that's endorsing the Mandingo fights, you know? Well, don't get it twisted. There are some people within ethnic communities who actually enjoy lording over their own people. And especially if they have the support and financial backing Mm -hmm. of a white power establishment. And in a microcosm, Candy is a white power establishment. So that young woman, when she's like, I know you didn't mean me, Candy, she is enjoying the position of power she has over others. Some people within our own communities do feel a sense of, you know, like speaking for the Latin community, I don't, Jay, you can speak for the black community if you feel like it, but like, to me, I know I've seen it. There are plenty of Latino people who can feel, who want to be superior to other Latinos within their own community, you know? And so it's, it's not out of the realm of possibility this kind of stuff happens, you know? And I think it's, it's probably true in really all communities, to be honest. Of course it is. I mean, of course it is. It absolutely yeah. is. So, yeah, so, so I think some people get caught up in this narrative, like, oh, they were poor, you know, it was, it was a shame and all that, but some people actually enjoyed it. And, they thrive off of shit like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to meet one. I mean, we're going to meet Steven, you know, so. That's, like I said, we're going to talk about Steven. Steven is a very fascinating character. In the, this is a lot. Here, here's what I'll say. And again, I'll, I'll translate it to a, a Jewish thing, but there's the Sonderkommandos, which are the Jewish people during the Holocaust who worked for the Nazis to one degree or another. Oh, yeah, right, yeah. And whether or not they were forced or how they were forced. And I am certain that there were some people, just as you said, John, who enjoyed the power, enjoyed lording it over on some level. Mm -hmm. I'll also say that my level of judgment of people in the worst possible situation who have almost no choice is also low. You know, like, I don't know how Sheba got in this room. I don't know how a particular person at Auschwitz was forced to drag the bodies to the gas chamber. I don't know if they threatened their kid. I don't know. I don't know how it got there. And so I go like, this is still the Holocaust. This is still slavery. There's no question in my mind who the victims are, even if I might have judgments of sort of certain choices they might have made, you know. Um, Okay. (laughs) Do you feel that way about a black slaver, too? Do I think the character that Django plays, I have, I have, if if he were actually that person, yeah. no, I'm not going to say I have a lot of sympathy for that person. No, right. right. I would say, I mean, just to say before we, and we can move on, mm-hmm. but you know who a black slaver is technically, Stephen, and we'll see it. And I have zero sympathy for Stephen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with you. That's how I feel too. Well, and particularly because Stephen doesn't seem like a person who is has no choice. Yeah. You know, Steven seems to be living the life, you know, uh-huh. yeah. whereas I don't know what Candy has done with Sheba, but my assumption is that she has not just been living the life, even though she has got a nice dress and probably eats pretty well, you know. Now, according to Mogi, if I do business with you, I'm doing business with both y'all. He does the eyeball and you the billfold. Is that it? And then for the first time, Candy describes Django was something that he will use to describe him many times, which is bright boy. Mm-hmm. Bright boy is not the same as calling him boy, but he oh. is calling him boy. It's a left-handed compliment. Yeah. 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 Mogi tells me you looked over my African flesh and you was none too impressed, huh? Not the top dollar. And it seems like it's going to be the end of the conversation. 
You see, you want to buy a beat-ass nigga from me, those are the beat-ass niggas I want to sell, so. He don't want to buy the niggas you want to sell. He wants the nigga you don't want to sell. Well, I don't sell the niggas that I don't want to sell. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> but if I made you an offer so ridiculous, you'd be forced to consider it. And what do you consider ridiculous? For a truly talented specimen? Well, the right nigga? How much would you say, Django? $12,000. And Candy replies, Well, gentlemen, you had my curiosity. Now you have my attention. It's the line I still use. <laughs> Sadly, this you is have my line. curiosity. Now you have my attention. Now you have my attention. <laughs> and then we cut to them out on the trail and uh candy is in his carriage and what we should say is he's in always in red because this guy is the devil and the material of his clothes are very beautiful the style is from a different period and what quentin wanted was that it is simultaneously elegant and tacky that you see the guy you see it's expensive but you also see it's almost it's not quite as it's not ridiculous like Django's outfit in the blue outfit, but it is someone trying to be French, trying to be sophisticated and not quite hitting it. Yep. And we hear Candy talking for the first time about uh, phrenology. Well, I part company from many of my phrenologist colleagues is I believe there is a level above bright, above talented. Above loyal that a nigger can aspire to. Say one nigger that just pops up in 10,000. The exceptional, God, I hate fucking, even me hate saying N-word over and over again, I just makes me uncomfortable. You say it, you put it in your mouth. <laughs> the exceptional nigger. We see Sheba, which maybe he's referring to a little bit, and of course we see Jenkins. But I do believe that given time, Exceptional niggas like Bright Boy here become, if not frequent, more frequent. Bright Boy, you are that one in 10,000. What do you guys think about this scene? It's this, it's this ass backwards level of respect. Mm-hmm. Like you said, not boy, but Bright Boy. You that one nigga in 10,000, you special. Backhanded compliments. It's, a, it's respect with disrespect written all over it. Mm-hmm. You know, because you're not like all the others. Kind of the same way Big Daddy told uh, Benita how to treat Django. You can't treat Django like the other N-words because he's not like the other N-words. And then again, should I treat him like white folk? No. no. Same way. No. <laughs> Hard no. Somewhat similar the way Candy looks at Django. I, you're special, but you're not white folks special. Because hmm. I even got low-level white folks wor- working for me, Stone Cypher and his crew. And you, yeah. you, you, you're not as special as them, which is crazy. Because yeah. that's, that's back barnyard deliverance before deliverance, you know. <laughs> and so Calvin says these things, but he makes it seem as if, you know, my, my, my colleagues in phonology, like you really have a bunch of brain studies, people who do brain studies in phonology that you, 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 you converse with regularly to understand the mind of black people, that they're able to be subservient. And we'll, we see about that later when we start examining the skull of, of old Ben and stuff like that. Well, yeah, the thing is, 
again, the real world comparisons are here. The modern world comparisons are here, right? Because white supremacists love, and that's what he is, love to talk about their theories of why people of color, black people specifically, are inferior. They have all this supposed research and information by biased scientists or biased organizations that purposely uh, reach a conclusion that they wanted to reach and manipulate the information in order to do so. And so they, and Candy, I think is actually an incredibly stupid person, but he's good at this, right? He's good at wielding his power. This is what he's good at. But I think we go back to the French comment as don't speak French or right? Cause he probably was embarrassed by it. Cause he probably couldn't learn it. He probably tried to learn it and couldn't learn it and was made to feel a fool. So he, likes to be seen as the most educated person in the room. And so this whole diatribe and a lot of these white supremacists you see nowadays who are pumping out their fucking nonsense on social media and all over the place because they've done the research and they've studied and they've looked at these studies and blah, blah, blah. It's the same thing, you know, and it, it's com it comparable. And I love that, that, we're, that Tarantino doesn't shy away from showing that as well. It, these aren't just, if you just made the white people in this film just overly bad, and they're just bad, it would have been boring. The fact that he shows you that there are levels to this kind of racism, both micro and macro, this kind of supreme, white supremacy, it's, it's very powerful. And, and getting an actor of DiCaprio's quality to really play the nuances of this kind of stuff is great to see. And the thing that strikes me about Bright Boy is that's the same term, in essence, that you hear from people over the last few decades. Oh, he's well-educated, well-spoken, rather. Oh, he's a well-spoken black man, or he's a well-spoken black woman, or look at, wow, he's wow, he's more intelligent than I anticipated, blah, blah, blah. So there's always that kind of thing, uh, these backhanded compliments towards black people, because there are some people who just instinctively think black people are stupid. And it's- I've, I've dealt with that. I've dealt yeah, with that. Sure you have, Jay. You're a I did a person. show. Sure. I did a show in Syracuse, Indiana. If you do not know where it is, you're not missing anything. The only thing darker than me there was the night sky. And I will never <laughs> this is the honest to God truth. I will never forget doing a show there. My flight, my picture is on the flyer everywhere. Whoa. When I walked in the door, the needle on the record scratched and stopped. <laughs> they knew I was coming as a comedian. But when I walked in the door, there still was a huh. Okay. So did the show, had a great time, started selling merchandise. After the show, I had a white man walk up to me and say, you know, you're one of the good ones. I initially eventually packed my shit up and said, it's time to go. That was the <laughs> last thing I needed to hear. You're one of the good ones. Yeah, exactly. That term as well. Yes. The one of the and he ones. thought he thought he was saying something nice to you. Yes, yes. he did. Because he said it with all sincerity and love in his heart. Yep. And that yep. speaks to the supremacy of the ignorant. Yeah. The, the uh, I want to go back, John, to something you had said, yeah. which is about intelligence. And th this is what I think about it, in terms of like intelligence and education. It's like clearly the best educated person in this movie is Schultz. Like he's, he's mm. an actual dentist. He has a degree. He speaks many languages. You get the sense he has read many books. He is very erudite. He knows a lot of stuff. He is well-educated and yeah. intelligent. Then you have Candy who probably was educated to some degree. And so he has learned some stuff. Sure. And then you have Django, who with no advantages at all, is leaps past Candy because he is extremely intelligent. You see what, what Django 
his has been able to do with his disadvantages yeah. versus what Candy has only failed to, as you said, learn French or probably never read Alexander Dumas. Mm -hmm. You know, like he is. It's all the advantages masquerading as intelligence. Right. You know, he's a guy. He's a person who's pissed away the advantages, and Django with less advantages has is outsmarts him in numerous. Yeah. Um, I mean, Lots. almost no advantages. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. right. I mean, like the opposite. Fair um, so we're out on this trail again, and the uh, overseers, including Walton Goggles, who's Billy Crash, are laughing at Django, who walks right up to the guy that made the joke and pulls that guy and his horse down. Oh! <laughs> uh, Schultz has a strong reaction. All of these guys start to draw, and of course, Django is way too fast. Touch your guns, you die. Everybody calm down. Hey, the fact that everybody was about ready to shoot Django. At, again, Calvin, $12,000 is on the line. Uh, don't you yeah. stop antagonizing my guests. Leave him yeah. the fuck alone. Yeah, this wasn't about social Southern hospitality. It wasn't about, no. about Southern hospitality at all. Because even Billy Crash like, but this nigga. And they're like, hey, it was just a misunderstanding. You better listen to your boss, white boy. Oh, I'm gonna go walking in the moonlight with you. You wanna hold my hand? <laughs> this okay. is one of the greatest exchanges in the film. I love trash talk. And this is essentially trash talk between these two. And Goggins, I mean, Goggins, he does it in Hateful Eight as well. This is a guy who's never going to be a superstar. Right. But God damn it, does Tarantino know how to write for this guy? Like he, or does Goggins know how to interpret uh, Tarantino's work? Yeah, when you have a natural Southern accent, just say <laughs> racist shit, it works perfectly. What do you mean? <laughs> he knows how to write for him. It's Walter Goggins' accent screams, in work, it come out at any moment, and it would fit. Walter Goggins is one of my favorite actors to watch. Yeah. But yeah, so one of my favorite actors to watch, I remember when I first got really introduced to him in Predators. No, and yeah. mm. to listen, and you're like, oh, you just know how to be a grade-A racist and asshole, which means I'm hoping in real life you married to a dark black woman, <laughs> give to the NAACP, have a seat at the BT Awards, and a couple other things. Just want to put that out there, ladies and gentlemen. Right. Maybe the cookout. Just for an hour, then. Maybe just for an hour at the cookout. Just, just an hour. That's a hot hour. 37 minutes, exactly. <laughs> 37 minutes. Uh, Jay, I seem to remember uh, when we started this that one of uh, your favorite moments was when we suddenly heard Rich Ross. Rick Ross. Rick, yes, Rick Ross. Oh, you so white. Leave that in. Steve, you leave that in, you white boy. Rick Ross. Sorry. <laughs> and now I have to. I have to leave it in, and I'm embarrassed. <laughs> I'm, I'm literally blushing. I knew, by the way, I knew I was going to fuck up something like this on this episode. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. I even double checked shit. Steve I Rapper. knew I was, God damn it. The rapper Richard James Ross, we now hear him. What? No. <laughs> I love it, man. It's so good. No, no. Uh, it's great. Because <laughs> you got it right in the first part, or Jay mentioned it in the first place. Jay mentioned it. Right. No, there'll probably be another one. <laughs> but you like this song that was my point. A, i like because it just it came out of nowhere yeah dude yeah and, and I understand it had the western theme behind it you know all that but it's like it's rick fucking ross anybody <laughs> want to tell me what rick ross's slavery besides wing stop got to do with the same thing i don't know how lemon pepper wings and oh. slavery never mind i'm gonna stop i'm gonna <laughs> stop good um 
Yeah, I mean, it's so great, the soundtrack that includes the Rick Ross stuff with Jim Croce. Like, who would have thought those would have been on the same soundtrack, but it completely works in this movie. I pronounced Jim Croce correctly. <laughs> but Rick Ross is a whole different thing. Yep, you know what? That sounds about right on this podcast. <laughs> yep. I need a hundred black chocolates for a hundred bad men, a hundred black grapes so I can lay their ass in. And then this moment. So where I do find some of the things Django does, I, I go like, was this the right strategy? Where I totally agree, and the scene is absolutely painful and horrible, is where one of the slaves starts to eyeball him. You keep your goddamn eyeballs off me. You flash that bad look at me again, I'll give you a reason not to like me. Mm-hmm. And then he says, now move, and he calls him the N-word. Mm-hmm. With so authority. Before- Oh, yeah. So before I get to the next moment, mm-hmm. I'm just curious how this moment of him coming down on this one person who I think was looking at him with respect and awe in the way that he looked at Schultz at the beginning of the film. You because really thought he, that? When he, was, when he threw an overseer on the ground and was threatening, yeah. You I don't think, hell no. Here's why. I hear what you're saying. In the beginning, it's a whole different thing. But remember, what is Django's role? This is, we just have one bounty hunter. We just have one bounty hunter who's freeing a slave, right? That's a different ball game. We now have a black slaver. You know what? You're right. You're right. No matter what he says to the other white guys, he's still a black slaver. Yeah. No matter what. And one of them, because those are all future Mandingo fights, will be bought by him. Yeah. It's yeah. not a look of it's not a look of reverence, it's a look of disgust. Plus it keeps the illusion going that Absolutely. he talks yes. down to them the way that white people talk down to them in this situation. So he stays kind of in that vein with these people keeping them all on their heels. So it's then, purposeful what he does. Absolutely. This and this is the one that makes perfect sense to me. Mm-hmm. And then in the next moment, if that wasn't enough, he announces publicly, You niggas gonna understand something about me. I'm Western Indies white men here. You get the molasses out your ass, you keep your goddamn eyeballs off me. Django's playing the role, man. Yeah. He plays it, he plays it so <laughs> hard. Again, it scares Schultz. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. Because he like, uh, because again, Schultz has no idea what, what, for all intents and purposes, he has no clue what he's gotten himself into. Right. Yep. He is, he is, you could argue, out of his element. This is a, a level he's never played at, nope. uh, Schultz. And because Candy, the from the opening of their meeting in the at that uh, in that place where the Mandingo fight was happening, Candy doesn't turn around, doesn't say hello, doesn't say anything. It's as you said, Steve, it shocks Schultz because Candy operates at a whole nother level and sees him as new money. My man is old money. And yeah. old money don't pay much attention to new money. And so this is a level he's not. So that's why Schultz is kind of on edge about everything. But Django understands how to play this. He's been on these plantations. He knows. Remember, he said, don't know slave. There ain't no slave that doesn't know about Candyland. So he knows right. from the stories mm-hmm. how to play this out. Arguably, he's more educated about the situation than Schultz is. So he's playing it a certain way. And I also think this is a little bit of like um, some white people get real uh, unsettled by aggressive people of color and seeing 
that cause conflict. Like they don't want to be around God. Just, ah, ah, they get all and And so you're seeing Schultz revert to that. Uh, even though this is a guy who has no problem uh, setting up these grand scenarios and doing these incredible monologues before he shoots people. Um, Django's is much more direct, much more abrasive. And so it unsettles Schultz. It's not a way he's used to doing things. Uh, and so there, there are two different approaches to try to get the same result. But also while it unsettled, while it unsettles Schultz, it yeah. warms up Calvin. Yes, it does. Right. I agree. Yeah. It warms up Calvin. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you what I think is that I think that Schultz, while he always had an opinion about slavery, I suddenly am going, you know what? I think him finding Django in that opening sequence, that was actually his first real interaction with slavery. I think Mm -hmm. he's been out in Wyoming. I think he's been up north. I think he's been a bounty hunter all over the place. And I think he's never been to the Deep South. And I think that he has never actually seen a Mandingo fight. I think this is all new to him. I don't think that, yeah. It's a whole other level that he's playing at. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he was prepared for this. So he goes to talk to Django. Don't get so carried away with your retribution. You lose sight of why we're here. You think I lost sight of that? Yes, I do. Stop antagonizing Candy. Which... To your point, John, I think you're right. I think this last moment was the opposite of antagonizing Candy. Yeah, yeah. You're going to blow this whole charade or more than likely get us both killed. And I, for one, don't intend to die in Chickasaw County, Mississippi, USA. Chickasaw County, Mississippi, USA. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's the way he said it. Because like, yeah. that accent's like, Chickasaw County, Mississippi, USA. <laughs> And Which is this a bit is the shadowing because he will. <laughs> yeah. And this is the moment where Schultz is wrong and Django is 100% right. I'm not antagonizing. I'm intriguing him. You're, you're yelling abuse at these poor slaves? This is where Schultz's compassion is actually blinding him to what he should mm-hmm. be doing. Right. And Django correctly, I think, says, I would call the man who had me kill another man in front of his son. And he didn't bat an eye. What you said was, was that this is my world. And in my world, you got to get dirty. So that's what I'm doing. I'm getting dirty. And Schultz has to kind of take that in. And he says, well, you're paraphrasing a tad, but that was a general gist. (laughs) And he walks back to Candy. Uh, and I like there's one more calling uh, Billy Crash Moonlight <laughs> before we, we get going. Let's move, Moonlight. <laughs> Apparently, Quentin Tarantino described this journey from where they met to Candyland as wanting to feel like a journey through hell. Mm. And this next sequence, yeah, as we oh, get that's to this why cabin, to, That's why you had to clutch yourself, because I was like, I know what comes next. And I think about it like, oh, yeah, that, that speaks volume. Yeah, this and we hear, coming up. We hear sounds, we hear grunts, we see these guys, white guys doing something. We also see a woman with like a red bandana or a scarf across her face. Mm. And this is Zoe Bell, who's in yeah. Death Proof, also Uma's yeah. stunt double in Kill Bill. And she was supposed to have a whole subplot. <laughs> yep. Yep. S- something well, about her whole jaws missing under the red thing. I don't even think they oh, shot weird. much of it. Oh, okay. And they just, and it's, it's weird to me to have a character that's so arresting visually yeah. in like two shots of the movie and not explain any of it. I, they were a good a, role. He gave it, he made it a four in Hateful Eight though. And in, mm-hmm. um, 
death proof. Yeah. 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 Six horse. Oh, six horse Judy. Yeah. Hateful eight. So yeah, there is a black man treed by dogs and this is D'Artagnan. And he is a slave of Candyland who has run off. I can't fight no more, Monsieur Candy. Yeah. Just to the line, I can't fight no more, we understand. Because well, the scene we just saw, we understand yeah. what this is. Mm-hmm. Mr. Mogi, who is uh, D'Artagnan supposed to fight on Friday? One of this new law. The way he looks now, blind Indian wouldn't better beat on him. And again, D'Artagnan is just begging not to be forced to fight. And part of it, because I watched the previous scene, it's 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 not to be forced to kill, yeah. too. It's not just having a little boxing match. Mm-hmm. It's killing at the end. I done paid $500 for you. When I pay $500, I expect to get five fights out of a nigga before he roll over and play dead. Are you going to reimburse me? Do you even know what reimburse means? Stone Cypher and his and his crew are giggling. They all and even Billy Crafts and they're giggling. They know what this is. Yeah. And, and again, does, do those ahead, white guys know? Do those white guys know what the word reimburse means? No, of course, probably no. not. But they're just giggling. Yeah, I I I, I hate. Well, obviously, I hate this fucking situation. This is like <laughs> the understatement of the goddamn year. <laughs> um, and suddenly, as things are getting more and more tense and more and more abusive. The camera pushes in on Schultz, who looks worried and concerned, and he says, I'll reimburse you. You will? <laughs> that that Leo responds in that moment. I'm sorry, Steve, the response is so, it's so almost like he broke character for a second and caught it. It was like, you will? Like, you will? <laughs> you will? Yeah. Well, and this is the, this is the guy that said, shoot the man in front of his kid. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah. that is that cold-hearted person who was like, "This is the job." That guy's not here right now with yeah. with what's happening with D'Artagnan. Mm-hmm. You'll pay five hundred dollars for practically a one-eyed old Joe ain't fit to push a broom. No, he won't. He's just tired of you toying with him. Is all. Matter of fact, so am I. But we ain't paying a penny for that picking any. Ain't got no use for him. Ain't that right, Doc? And Schultz knows he's right and yep. says, you heard him, and puts his money away and sits back down. Schultz has to acquiesce to Django again. Mm-hmm. Yep. No matter, Django like, no, you're not going to buy him. Because if you buy him, you're soft now. Yep. You're soft. You're not buying him. Nah, he worthless. Nope. And again, you're supposed to be this black slaver. You do not give a damn about well, none of these dudes. Well, because you, in the previous scene, Schultz says, remember why we're here? And Django goes, you think I've forgotten? Well, it's actually Schultz who's forgotten. Because yep. him standing up for D'Artagnan means that they don't get Hildy. I mean, that if, if they move forward. There's, Absolutely. It's Schultz who makes the mistakes all through this process. Yep, I agree. It's Schultz who is the... Because him standing up for D'Artagnan in this moment betrays... Something that a person who is looking to buy Mandingo fighters would not do, uh, and that's why Jamie has to yank, or sorry, Django has to yank him back to reality by telling him we're not going to pay a, a you know a dime for this picking any uh, whatever he says. So it, that's so it you know Schultz is the one that lets his heart get ahead of his brain in this situation. It's the uh, juxtaposition and- of it's the juxtaposition of you're playing a role. Never break the role. Never break yep. character. Yep. It's the juxtaposition of it. Seeing as you won't pay a penny for this picking any here, 
You won't mind me handling this nigga any way I see fit. And Django totally coldly says, He's your nigga. Leo turns to his poorly speaking associate, Mr. Stone Cipher. Yeah. But by the way, this is like the the evidence that the white supremacist views of race are wrong are everywhere in the world. Oh, yeah. The idea that you can look at the color of someone's skin and judge something like intelligence or morality or anything like that. These are all ridiculous ideas. And Mr. Stonecipher is a perfect example. Yeah. And and so is Candy, frankly. And he says, Stonecipher? That Marsha and a bitches send D'Artagnan to nigga heaven. And they release the dogs who kill D'Artagnan. It's an interesting moment, right? Because D'Artagnan's name is what? From Three Musketeers. And then later when Schultz goes after Candy, the way he begins it is by talking about Alexander Dumas and again, embarrassing Candy's ignorance of not knowing that Dumas was black. So connecting the tissue that it's the D'Artagnan death that uh, messes him up and using the Alexander Dumas thing at that same time later on in the movie, it's a nice little foreshadowing or seed that he's planting here. Yeah, I, I, I have, it, you know, John, there are very few times on the cinephiles where I have no words. <laughs> okay. And this is, this is one of them. Yeah, because it's now we go into this scene. Yeah. You thought the Mandingo fighting scene was, this is, that's like I said in part one, you know how the first half of this movie, it, there, yeah. there's jokes and giggles and everything of sorts. Now all of a sudden, once it gets real and he becomes a full on bounty hunter, all the jokes are pretty much gone. Yeah. The brutality and the horrors of all of this are real because we saw the Mandingo fight. And what does he do when he decides to handle his nigger the way he wants to? Have Marsha and the dolls send him to nigger heaven. What? And you watch a man, which legit has happened in slavery. They have said it. It has been historically proven. Mm -hmm. Ripped to pieces by dogs. The boss looks a little green around the gills for a blood sport like nigger fighting. No. He just ain't used to seeing a man ripped apart by dogs is all. You are used to it. I'm just a little more used to Americans than he is. (laughs) And here comes the embarrassing part. Say the next line where he embarrasses him. Now, Mosu Candy. The way Django said it was on purpose. Because remember, don't speak to him in French. It'll embarrass him. Yep. Yes. As well, and the thing in particular coming from a black man. Okay? Yes, absolutely. We rode five hours so you could show off your stock. Let's get to it. Because as of now, if he's an example, I ain't impressed. And we head out, and even as we're heading out, we have those shots of the dogs and of the blood and of what's happening. And you could see, and I think Jamie Foxx plays this perfectly subtly as he puts his sunglasses on even though he's acted as if none of this has affected him yeah. just in the little waver of his hand, when he puts those sunglasses on, you could see that it has. Mm-hmm. And then we cut to a shot of a check being written and signed and stamped signed with the word Calvin candy by this old black man. We're going to get to Steven guys. <laughs> yeah. This is how you knew you knew right now from this moment, 
that old black dude was signing the checks in yep. Calvin's name yeah, using right. Calvin's stamp that legitimized it. If there was any question going into this moment, who had the power in the house? Yeah. It's Cal. It's, it's not Calvin. It's Steven. It may be Candyland. Calvin Candy may be the man of the property, but you find out how much power Stephen has, and it's in this moment. Stephen controls his money. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. A black man controls his money. And a little thing I noticed this time around, because you bring up this scene, Steve. Tarantino makes a effort to put a close-up on Stephen signing Candy's name. Yes. And it is much more cleaner and eloquent than Candy's writing when, when he's he writing signs Hilde, it later. Yep. When he's signing Hildy's name uh, on the bill of yep. sale. I, I never noticed that. Yep. Yeah. These are little things. And he is just showing you that for all his pomp and circumstance, Candy, he's actually probably one of the most uneducated people on in this whole film but we're we're snowed over by the fact that he's so brutal and we think if he's this brutal he must be so smart he quotes all these you know theories and whatever and when he's doing the skull thing trying to sound intelligent it's all bluster for the reality which is he can probably barely write barely read he probably doesn't even read and but but he's i mean i think he can read but maybe what does he need it for he is he's got a lawyer He's got Stephen. He just lives off the money and lords his power over these people. So I think it's a real smart decision to show you how little of a person this person actually is, no matter how much money he has. Well, I think everything that was I said about Django, mm-hmm. a person with no advantages, and look how intelligent and look how much yeah. that he can, as opposed, I think we can also certainly say that about Stephen. Like, yeah. Stephen has managed to carve out for himself right. a whole bunch of stuff. And I bet, I bet Stephen does read those books in that library. Oh, hundred percent. hundred percent. Like Stephen is obviously far more intelligent than Calvin, but yeah. I think he's actually far more educated as well, you know? And he's playing a role as well. Oh yeah. His whole that- movie. Because you yep. find out in the very last sequence you see Steven, we'll find out later when Steven walks with the cane oh, and yeah. all of a sudden drops it and stands up right. He's like, we, you ready to go? Let's go, son. Let's go, young buck. I, I think I'm really glad you brought that up here because obviously we spoil every movie on the cinephiles. Yeah. But I think that moment informs everything. That, that I'd say that moment and this moment right here of him signing the check. Mm-hmm. And there's one other of him sitting and sipping his cognac. Oh, Wait, yeah. sipping in the library. Yep. I, I think that's the real Steven. And so I think, yeah, yeah. I, you know. I, I, but I'm I'm going to venture. I'm going to say a thing. I don't know if I believe this thing, but I'm going to say it and, and see what you think. Is Steven the most complicated, hard-to-know character in any Quentin Tarantino movie ever? No. No. Because then I'll tell you why. <laughs> this is why I'll tell you why. Yeah. We've already, as we've already established the house slave, the field slave, yeah. the one-eyed Charlie, all these different people. 
You see Steve as a house slave. You you go into this movie knowing somewhat about slavery of the 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 pecking order, if you will, right? right? There's the house madams. We've seen the older black woman with Big Daddy's house. Right, right, right. So you would think he's the equivalent, right, for Candy. But Steven's more than this. Much, Steven's, yeah. he's, Steven's much more. So it doesn't make him complicated. It's like, wait, is he really just oblivious and playing this role? Mm. Or like you said earlier, John, does he know he living the fat life? Oh. He know how to play his part. He still, he runs the house. Mm-hmm. Not only does he run the house, but he can do, he can boss around the white guys yep. Yep. with no problem. As we're He's, about to see when yep. he goes at Candy about, what the hell? Who's this black dude on the, the horse? The very way he first talks to him. Yep. Yep. No, it's, 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 I think it's shocking. I think it's bizarre. I think the more, but the more that I watch it and the more that I see the relationship, is that it's this? Well, we'll get into it. We're going to get yeah, into yeah. as we go. There's a lot here, but we're heading now finally to Candyland. And as I mentioned, this idea of we're moving through hell, and obviously the death of D'Artagnan is the most brutal hmm. moment. What they wanted to do was that visually, Candyland would be a complete transformation from everything we've seen. So you think about everywhere we've been, whether it's moving through the rocks, whether it's the muddy town where we go kill the sheriff, whether it's uh, the going through the snow everything has been complicated you know mm-hmm. everything has been enclosed when we're at that cabin where d'artagnan is killed everything is dirty there's lots of overgrown there's lots of vines there's lots of trees there's lots of brush and now they opened it all up they mm-hmm. wanted it f- totally flat so that Candyland would stand out and this as i mentioned is michael riva who's the production designer who tragically died on the set and he uh was very involved in all these locations and it wanted to feel like Candyland was this place out of time this this place totally removed from all the other environments we've been to up to this point yeah um and candy calvin is perfectly framed in that carriage as he's moving towards his domain you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and sam jackson comes out of the front we see the slaves lining up. By the way, I think the makeup on Samuel Jackson is great. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hello, Stephen, my boy. And we expect subservience. We expect him to, you know, essentially bow down to his master. And yeah. he mm-hmm. does not behave that way, as you guys said. He says, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hello, my ass. Who this nigga up on that name? Oh, Stephen, you have nails for breakfast. What's the matter? Why are you so honored? You miss me? And I love this progression because he's he's kissing his ass mm-hmm. and then it changes. He says, I miss you like a like a hog miss flop, like a <laughs> like a, a baby. Miss Mammy Titty. <laughs> I miss you like I miss a rock in my shoe. <laughs> that last one is exactly saying, I didn't miss you. I was happier when you were not here. Yep. I miss you like a rock in my shoe. Yeah. Now, I asked you, who this nigga on that name? Hey, Snowball. You want to know my name or the name of my horse? You ask me. That's who the hell you calling Snowball, horse boy? I snatch your black ass off that name down here in the mud so fast. Make your- again, listen out quick. Again, an old dude with a cane. I'll drag your ass off this horse. you like, dude, you can't do anything. Little did we know, he can. 
You can't. Well, and he has every single person, including Calvin, at this plantation kind of works for him. Yeah. Yep. Nobody nobody talks back to Steven. I don't none of the overseers talk back to Steven. The, the white guys don't talk back to Steven. I don't think Calvin's sister talks back to Steven. You know, Calvin will argue with him up to a certain point. Let me at least introduce the two of you. Django, this is another cheeky black bugger like yourself, Steven. Steven, this here is Django. You two ought to hate each other. They're on this ele- both on this elevated level of a sorts. And it's funny because remember, we go back, Django says he don't want to play a one-eyed Charlie because it's worse than the head house nigga, right? Hmm. Steven is that. So they're on the same plane, but technically with the roles, Django is worse than Steven. Hmm. Well, and and I think there's a thing where Calvin saw Django and said, You are one in ten thousand. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he sees Steven the same way. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Is well, he, he's putting them on the same plane to some degree. You're right, 100%. And it's ironic because Steven is mad that someone else has shown up who could, who's on this, who might threaten the plane that Steven is on. Yep. And again, I'm going to look at this from a cultural landscape and certainly amongst some communities of color you know you see when you achieve a certain level you get mad when other people try to achieve that level or people get jealous of you achieving that level and so they want to take you down and so again here we go with steven coming in and steven is doing and speaking to uh, candy uh worse than Django has spoken to him and Django riding in on the horse. So there's there's so much going on here that is levels deep in the, their interactions, both culturally, but also socially with the constructs that were going on in slavery at that time. It's such a fascinating back and forth because he comes real close to where Candy is like, you know, like, I'm going to kill this guy. Like, he is so close, Stephen, until Candy loses his patience and yells at him to get in there. Remember, we go back to them marching down. Mm-hmm. He... Django is still black no matter what but Calvin more than seeing black he sees green and Mm. he knows messing with Django will mess up $12,000 right (laughs) right (laughs) right exactly can can I say Jay I particularly want to ask you this question which is Mm -hmm. when you see Steven come out in this scene and you see the way he speaks to Candy Mm. and the arguing and the disrespect and the swearing that what was your initial reaction to meeting this character for the first time oh it was literally this is the head house one but Mm. he also has garnered that level of respect quote unquote and the reason being because you look at how he talks to him the only way he can talk to calvin like that is calvin respects him and how does calvin have to respect him he has had to dog out of the slaves completely right like yes. more than just the damn near one-eyed mm. Charlie. Mm-hmm. He has to have sold them out. And you, you know, we we as black people a lot of times we call people now. Look, you see people that have been labeled a Steven now. Mm-hmm. Now again, this is 12, this is interesting. Uh, this is 11 years ago right, with right. this film, but since then you'll hear somebody being labeled a Steven. You'll see people on social media who have these remarks and anti-black remarks, and the first meme will be popped up is Steven holding candy in the scene we'll talk about later. Mm. And so you see Steven, and you're like, 
This was the head house in work. This is something Malcolm X talked about in his speeches. Yeah, yeah, what we yeah. see in the movies and all this, that, and the third. And so you don't know, you know, you just hear this one level and you're like, he's able to talk to him a certain way. There's a respect there. But, you know, it's like the only way that respect gets there, it's not just being the head black dude, because every other slave in the house going to kiss Calvin's ass. Let's just be real. But the only way you get right. But the way you get that level of respect is you have to do something just as bad as everybody else, because you find out just as much how much power in in less than in less than 60 seconds or shall I say 100 in less than three minutes. You're going to find out how much power Stephen has. Yeah. Uh, maybe this is a better question to ask after we're done with the scene and we go into the house. But I, I'm asking a, a, a Steve Morris question here. I mean, what is Candy's relationship with Stephen? Do you think Stephen was a field slave when he was brought here under Candy's dad and had aspired and had ambition to get to a position where he was the house slave? And did he raise or help to raise Candy, which is why they have this kind of relationship? Because Stephen walks that line. He knows when to push and when to pull back in this entire scene. It is a masterclass in small form of acting from Samuel L. Jackson. He he clearly registers, Stephen does. His displeasure shoots the shots, tries to take down Django, smash it you know verbally comes after him then verbally goes back at candy mm-hmm. and then goes no 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 i'm gonna do what you say i'm gonna do what you do but i'm just saying this guy so he knows how to get candy to the limit and then pull back and so i think it's a fascinating dance that he's doing here but it is a dance from years and years and years of being a part of this house and having this relationship he probably almost sees him as a second dad though candy would never admit it but what do you guys think I have a whole set of thoughts you just created in my head. That was like, that was like, you know, the diamond bullet to my brain with that question. <laughs> I mean, I got I, mine. Go ahead, Steve. I'll, you, I'll say yours. Let's so you I will tell, I'll tell, and, I, and what's interesting too is that somewhere this exists because my understanding is that Tarantino writes backstory. Yes, he does. For all yes. his characters. Yep. But here's what, so I hadn't thought about whether or not he was in the field before. And part of my brain had been like, well, he maybe he's, you know, old Ben's son or something like that. But I don't think that's the case. And particularly based on your question is what I actually think it is, is that I think this is like an all about Eve thing, which is that I do think he was in the field. I do mm-hmm. think that he saw old Ben and went, that's what I want to be. Yep. And I think young Steven step by step ingratiated himself in the system. And I also think that old Ben in the end hated Steven, that there were very different people very different kinds of people. And that Steven, it was like every little bit of power he took, he kept, and then he built, and then he built. And 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 I it brings up another question for me is, and of course, Jay, I want to hear your feelings about this too. Mm-hmm. But my, my question I want to add to it, deep down, or maybe not so deep down, is Calvin Candy afraid of Steven? Good question. Um, well, let's do, Jay, what are your thoughts on the Steven stuff? So, let me start off first with the backstory. Mm-hmm. Steven could have been a field slave, but I think the pro- I think the one thing we underestimated, well, we don't underestimate it after we start to learn Steven, but I think the one thing Calvin had underestimated about Steven, Steven's always been smart. Yes. Steven's oh, yeah. always been smart. So if Steven was a field slave, how do I get out the field? And the thing is, I'm going to get out this field for all intents and purposes by any means necessary. 
And if that means I got to sell and dime out every single one of them to gain favor, I will. And so you keep doing that. You gain so much favor and you've gained so much favor. Now you've gained a rapport and a level of trust. So now you've been uh, ingratiated from the field to the house, right? Calvin, at some point with all, think about it, with every slave master, they are a bit afraid Mm -hmm. because the fear of revolt is always there. So when the fear of revolt always comes up, what's the first thing they have somebody do? I need you to whip them. Right. I need you to reinstill this fear because they're getting too brazen, as they always think. They're getting too bold. And if you let them get too bold, then they can rise up. Well, Stephen's power isn't with the slaves. It's with Calvin's boys. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's that's more terrifying than anything for, for Calvin because, yeah, Calvin got the money, but Stephen can still run them. Mm-hmm. And you, and it, as it goes through this movie, you see Stephen has control. Oh yeah. And so, what we don't see is other thing. Remember, Calvin ran, Stephen ran the house while Calvin was gone. Yeah. Never put, never forget that one important thing. Stephen ran everything in Candyland while Calvin was gone. If that don't tell you how much power that that slave had, it, it you, you're missing something. Because again, there's the backstory we don't see. But Calvin was gone for God knows how long. Yep. And Stephen, not his sister, not any of the quote right. unquote overseers, right, right. not any of the white overseers. Stephen ran Candyland. And all of them knew it. All of and them know it. Everybody knew it. I also think, as we've met the people who were the white overseers who work for Candy, other than Goggins, who really doesn't get as much screen time as I think he deserves for that character. Agreed. Um, they're all idiots. And so Candy, who I believe cannot read or write, or can barely read or write, um, and is not educated, he is stupid which is why Steven knew he could play him the way he does because Steven, some, look, some people are born smart. It's relevant to where you're born into what economic situation you're born into. Some people just are naturally smart. Steven was smart. He was ambitious. You could look at Candyland like a business or Hollywood or whatever. And he's the studio head. And this person came in as a PA and understood what he had to do and step-by-step step accrued power. And now he sees a young buck coming in that might replace him. So the first thing he wants to do is shoot that young buck down, right? You can look at it that way in business, right? I want to get to be an executive. I got to step on people and backstab people to get to this situation because that's what Candyland has. That's the construct and the parameters and the conditions that Candyland has set out from Candy down. So I have to play the game. I'm smart enough to figure out the game, and I don't care who I have to backstab, as Jay said. So you get to this point here, and you you go, okay, well – what's the threat level? And I think Candy deludes himself that he's smarter than Steven at any time because it's that white privilege. At any time, I can kill you because you're black in this situation and no one's going to do a damn thing. So I have that power over you. But Steven knows he ha- if he has to outsmart Candy, he will. So I think yeah. it's an incredible dynamic watching them move around each other and all the power dynamics that get thrown into the air when Django shows up. So it's great. I, I agree with all that. And this it, it, it goes exactly to this question. And the more I think about it, the more I'm coming clear on it, which is that based on what you said, John, the I think 
that Calvin Candy was sent to the best schools. And when oh, he was failing yeah. out of when he's failing out of the best schools, yeah. there was more money donated to those schools. He was surrounded by the finest things, had the finest trappings, has a sense of what elegance and what education look like, but he's an idiot. And so he hasn't penetrated. And this is the big thing, I think, is that he had, he's pretending to be this educated, erudite guy, cultured person. Mm -hmm. But I think deep down, he knows he's a fraud. Mm -hmm. And he knows that Stephen is smarter than him. And he knows that Candyland would completely fall apart if he was actually in charge. Right. And this is why I go back to this idea of deep down, I think he's afraid of Stephen. I think, sure. I mean, I think he's, you know, his question later on in the movie, why don't they kill us? I think he's afraid of all the black people that surround mm -hmm. him and mm -hmm. that he knows that he is holds this position. He does. I don't think he faces this thought very often. Yeah. I think he buries this thought as far down as he possibly can, but I think he knows he's bullshit. I think he knows he, he's totally dependent on Steven. And I think he knows that his life on some level is hanging by a thread because he's a complete and total fraud surrounded by people that hate him. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I, and I don't think, and I think he's reflective of almost almost a majority of the people who owned slaves at the time because you wouldn't implement the kind of horrific punishments that they implemented on black people that they brought over, like the, the things we saw in the movie and, of course, in real life, seeing all those pictures, unless they were afraid. They don't try to – no ruling power tries to destroy another um, uh, section of their populace. Uh, in such vicious, vitriolic, brutal, ugly, inhuman ways, unless they fear the power that they have. So they're trying to destroy them so that they never rise up. Because as I said, I bet Steve, I bet Stephen was even involved in hiring all the dumb white people so that no one threatened him. I bet he was like, you know, he was involved with Candy. Candy would bring him in the can He'd be like, yes, those guys, great. Some smart white guy? No, 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 because no, he's going to try to overtake you. He's going to try to steal your business from you. I've, Stephen and Candy together have worked on creating a situation where they are the top two people on the pile, yep. and no one can threaten them. We also meet uh, Candy's sister, which is Laura Lee Cayouette, rhymes with bassinet. By the way, what, one of the decisions they made costume-wise was that she's widowed, and making clothes is really all she has in her life. And so she's literally like making costumes yeah. you know not just making clothes and so like this one is a little too young for her and then there's you know everything is a something that she is presenting about that matter about the nigger girl we were talking about nigger gal yeah i believe you mentioned she spoke german ah yes hildy what about him uh, do, do you think before the demonstration you could send around to my room and Candy tells Stephen that they want to see Hildy, and there is a bit of a problem. What? Uh, Hildy in the hot box. And they cut to Django, because he knows what that means. Yeah. And what we find out is that she tried to run away at the same time that D'Artagnan did. How bad did some Cypher's dogs tear her up? And when Django hears that, his hand goes to his revolver, which mm -hmm. he cocks, and you could see he's ready to throw down right there. Yep. Fortunately, the dogs went after D'Artagnan, not after Hildy. So she's okay. He eases the gun back into his holster. How long she been in the box? How long you think she been in there all damn day? 
And the little bitch got 10 more days to be in there. And Candy says to take him out. And again, Stephen is arguing. But Miss Candy should run off. Jesus Christ, Stephen. What is the point of having a nigga that speaks German if you can't wheel him out when you have a German guest? Now, I realize it is inconvenient, but still, you take her ass out. Yes, sir. And Stephen gives the orders. And we watch Django as he watches these three white men walk in slow motion towards the, the hot box. And this is a technique that Quentin Tarantino uses really well, which is like in order to make something seem fast and sharp and sudden, the thing before it should be slow. And so this slow motion walk is building up all this tension. And then when they finally open the door of the hot box, which is set into the ground, it happens super fast. And they open the door and you see this water thrown at her naked body. And there we see Hildy for the first time in real life. It is a shocking moment. And they pull her out just toss her naked into a wheelbarrow and just wheel her away. Mm-hmm. And you watch Django watching as the woman he loves, who has been essentially tortured and is being dragged naked away. Is you coming with me? Or is you going to sleep in that little box over here? And Django turns. And as he turns, and this is that 70s move, the camera mm-hmm. zooms in and we hear that sound. And the look that passes from Django to Steven mm-hmm. is powerful. That look was, I should shoot you right now. Yeah. Yep. Remember, we talk about it, we hear it earlier between Schultz and Django, how he can be impulsive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He can be impulsive. And at that moment, his impulse almost had him pull. He's quick on the draw. Like, <laughs> he would have took out Steven and a couple of others. You know, we don't know what it played out, but he had to remember, if I do this, they're going to kill it automatically. Oh, yeah. And at this moment, I think is, Django and Steven have come face to face for the first time and truly see each other as enemies. I think is a good time to end part two of our exploration of Django Unchained. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts on our Facebook page. You can just search for the Cinephiles on Twitter. It's Cine underscore Files, Cinephiles Podcast on Instagram. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts where we'd love your reviews. You can also subscribe other places like Spotify or on Overcast or maybe Stitcher or on YouTube where we love your comments. You can also uh, buy or stream Django Unchained along with every other film we've ever reviewed on cinephiles.net. You can support the show at patreon.com slash the cinephiles where we just put up a watch along of The Rock with special guest Shannon McClung. That was a lot of fun. Uh, and if you want to reach me, you can do it at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram and Enterprise Incidents. If you're a Star Trek fan, we're in the middle of the animated series. John, how would folks reach you? You can always reach me at the Roca says on Twitter, Instagram and TikTok, the Outlaw Nation on Twitch and my YouTube channel, YouTube.com slash John Roca says um, and uh, my other podcasts, the Geek Buddies and the Hot Mike. They're out there for you all to enjoy. And Jay Washington. Once again, I cannot thank you enough. It's amazing having you on the show. Uh, If people wanted to reach you on all the places, I think there are a lot of places that people can find you. How would they go about that? Uh, First and foremost, thank you as always, y'all, for having me on here. I love we continue this conversation. I love you all reached out to me to do it. It means a lot. I'm very appreciative and grateful. Thank you. Uh, Thank you to all the listeners. Uh, Mr. J. Washington, M-R-J-A-Y. You should know how to spell Washington on TikTok. I'm saying that first because I need those numbers. Instagram, Twitter, 
everywhere. I'm across the board on that. Uh, the Mad Titan podcast, everywhere you get your podcast from. I get you caught up on all the things happening in the Marvel and DC live action cinematic universes. It's Barbershop Talk for Nerds. Come on in the convo. And the Black Boy Content Club podcast. Myself, Chris Burns, Moses Prim. We are available podcasts everywhere. It's pop culture, movies, news, and a bunch of just craziness. We are just wild every week, and we're surprised we still have a show. Uh, but <laughs> there's so much more, but I thank y'all, man. Again, thank you so much for coming on the show, and I think that is it for this week. We will be back next time to maybe conclude our exploration <laughs> of Django Unchained right here on The Cinephiles. Cinephiles.